I was so touched by a domestic worker leader that said in one Congress that I have nothing to give my daughter as, as an inheritance, like money or a house, but I'm giving her this movement. Hello, sisters and brothers, and welcome to the Solidarity Center podcast, an interview show that highlights and celebrates the individuals working for labor rights, the freedom to form unions, and democracy across the globe. I'm your host, Shauna Bader-Blau. I'm also the executive director of the Solidarity Center in Washington, D.C. We're the largest U.S.-based international worker rights organization. We empower workers to raise their voice for dignity on the job, for justice in their communities, and for greater equality in the global economy, and for one just future. As we begin today's show, I want to give you a quick update on our sisters and brothers in Belarus. In a recent episode, we talked with Sergei Antasevich, vice president of the Belarusian Congress of Democratic Trade Unions, who described how union members are on the front lines of efforts to end government repression. Since then, we know of four union leaders arrested and four workers who went on strike at an oil plant who are now on trial. Union organizers have been jailed for two or more years for, unbelievably, disrupting public order. Many workers have lost their jobs or face huge legal fees because of their effort to promote free elections and the freedom to form unions. These brave women and men are risking everything for a chance at democracy. There are ways you can show solidarity. We've included some resources for you to take action in today's show notes, and you can follow this developing story on SolidarityCenter.org. Now, back to today's show. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, we've heard a lot about essential workers, the women and men who take care of us in so many ways. Grocery store cashiers, nurses, firefighters, and food service and delivery workers We've also seen how these workers have been forced to work without protective equipment or are even laid off without wages during lockdowns and staff cutbacks. Among them, domestic and home care workers. They are some of the least visible, yet there are more than 67 million domestic workers worldwide, primarily women, who work long hours, often with no days off. They care for our children, our elders and people with disabilities, cleaning our homes and cooking our meals. But in many countries, domestic work isn't considered essential or even considered work. My guest today, Adriana Paz Ramirez, will share with us how domestic workers in Latin America have joined together to turn the challenge of the virus and lockdowns into a moment of change and possibility. Adriana is the Latin America Regional Coordinator of the International Domestic Workers Federation, IDWF. The IDWF is an awesome global membership association that advances the rights of domestic workers. Adriana is a really special person. I had a great time with this interview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. My name is Adriana Paz. I am born and raised in Bolivia, and I am based in uh, between Mexico and Canada. 
I work with the International Domestic Workers Federation and I am the regional coordinator for Latin America. The IDWF is the first and the only global union federation that has been founded and led by women, grassroots women from the global south. That in itself is an unthinkable achievement for so many in uh, different sectors and that's the power that, that it has. Today we have 66 affiliates in 78 countries, a little bit more than half of a million individual domestic workers members. So we're going to ask some questions about the situation with domestic workers in Latin America under COVID, but before we get started, maybe we, with that, maybe we could orient our listeners about the overall situation of domestic workers in Latin America. Sure. Well, who are the domestic workers in Latin America? They are 90% women, mostly black women, indigenous women, migrant domestic workers, and the majority of them are the breadwinners of their houses and many of them, I will say 50%, according to our surveys, are um, single moms. We can see the impacts of patriarchy. I will say that the domestic work, it is really a continuation from slavery times. We call it modern servitude because in many countries, like with a big Afro-descendant population, like Brazil, Colombia, Peru, Domestic workers used to be slaves, and now they are domestic workers. In other countries with a huge indigenous population, like Peru, the Andean countries, Bolivia, Guatemala, they are mostly indigenous women who also were servants of the Spaniard conquerors or the oligarchies, the Latin American oligarchies in the beginnings of the republics. They have been not only excluded from legal protections and social protections, but their work not even considered as workers. So often their payment has been room and board or old clothes from the employers that are given to them in lieu of payment. I think most of them uh, today, most of them make less than minimum wage. One out of four work without social protections. And still, their conditions um, under which they work are one of the worst because of these intersections of different systems of oppression like class, gender, and, and race. Could you say a little bit more about not being understood as a worker? People who work every day work hard and long hours and yet are not seen as a worker. I think it has to do a lot. It's rooted right in patriarchy and colonialism. The employers and society in general, they assume that because they are women, they know, naturally they know how to cook, how to care, how to clean, and therefore you don't need to learn any skill for this. So their work has never been regarded as a work and therefore they have never been regarded as workers. One of the first articulations of, of, of the rights for the Latin American domestic workers movement back in uh, the beginning of the last century, our first unions can go back uh, to 1930s in Brazil, in Peru, in Bolivia. So the first articulations of the rights has been for them saying, we are not members of the family. 
we are not part of your family, we are workers. They even had to challenge the labor movement to say we are workers and our work is work. And they say this is the work that makes all the other work possible. Everyone is connected through care. We have received care or we gave care. Wow, so there's almost a hundred years of history in Latin America of this predominantly female, largely disenfranchised workforce organizing into organizations and unions. That's really incredible. What does it mean for domestic workers when they when they form a union? What's what is that like? I, I know you've seen and been with many domestic workers who have organized their first union. Can you tell me a story about a, a, a woman who had that experience? That's a great question, Shona. And I will say a little bit of the Latin American movement. They have been the first ones in creating a confederation in 16 countries, the Confederation of Domestic Workers in Latin America and the Caribbean. So they started to dream big 30 years ago and created the CONALTRAO. Uh, this confederation. When, when they are first able to organize themselves and to organize themselves into a union, union especially, it is like they are breaking free. They are redignifying themselves. They are bringing back their humanity, recognizing themselves that their work is valuable and that they deserve rights and protections as anyone else. It's really uh, putting themselves at the same level of humanity that any other human being and any other worker. Because they are mostly black women, indigenous women, you know that under colonialism, the arguments or the reasoning of the oppressors to exploit them, it is saying that they are less than humans. So when they unionize, it's because they had to break through all these internal discourses, intergenerational traumas, intergenerational oppression. And to take this major step, it's liberating and creating a social movement. It is, I think, one of the most incredible testimonies of the capacity of women to really lift themselves up. And in lifting themselves up, it's, I think, also changing the course of history. They understand that. And um, I was so touched by a domestic worker leader that said in one Congress that I have nothing to give my daughter as, as an inheritance, like money or a house, but I'm giving her this movement because this is changing our lives, wow. because this is changing our countries, because this is changing history. That is the significance of uh, getting themselves into a union if the women at the bottom of the bottom are raising up, all of us are raising up. It's a, a powerful image when you say it that way, quite inspirational. I know, Adriana, that you work very closely with individual women, domestic workers, and their collective organization, that you meet a lot of individual women, you do workshops and have a methodology of working to help build uh, voice and, and union power with women. And I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about that. Sure, and thank you to the Solidarity Center that is always working with us 
in experimenting and innovating different ways of, of building worker power. For us, working and building leadership, it's quite crucial to sustain the movement over time. The movement is all, but it needs a continuum renewal. So for us in, in IDWF has been very important to start approaching leadership building from a very humane aspect, which is really taking the angle of the approach of, 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 of a woman. We do not lead in the same way that men lead. We do not want to replicate leadership structures and leadership models that men do. That means top-down, hierarchical, the one that yells the most is the most powerful one because we have different ways. For our leadership methodology, the most important thing is starting at the level of the individual. And that means creating foundational skills. We call foundational skills when you are able to first really be in touch with yourself and to develop critical self-awareness about the, the moments and the places in your body where you were deeply wounded by systemic types of oppression. Most of our leaders, since they were born, they have been facing and surviving in different systems of oppression, which taught them to survive in ways that are translated into political action. Healing that those ways of surviving to translate this into a more cheerful, healthier, democratic, non-hierarchical political action, it's crucial for us. It is in us to lead in these ways. It's just really creating the space and giving the space to see each other and heal each other. Added to that, then we build technical and political skills for the leaders to be leading with their souls, with their bodies, and of course, with the strategies in place and analyzing power and building work and power. You know, when you were talking about multiple intersecting forces of oppression and that one of the methodologies is to start with the individual. I can imagine there are some really powerful conversations that you've been a part of in those transformative moments. Can you tell us about someone you have worked with and some of what she shared going through that kind of transformation? Absolutely. Unfortunately, one of the most common experiences of, for domestic workers is gender-based violence. Most of them have been uh, working since they were 12 years old, 14 years old, and domestic work is performed under closed walls, closed doors, high walls. So it is in isolation. And so their experiences as a woman have been shaped by sexual harassment and violence. For them, getting to recognize the traumas that, the ha that has, those experiences has uh, meant in their bodies, in their brains, and also in the way they lead as political leaders, it's a major breakthrough. It is scary. It is frightening at the beginning, but then finding everyone else that had similar or different experiences, I think that in itself has a lot of power and value. The transformation that we see in our leadership training courses, it's quite amazing. Even the body shape changes and they are so grateful to 
have this experience and to work at the human level. They often say, we are humans first. And bringing these spaces where they can feel their whole humanity and relate to them in that sense, with respect, with care and love, it translates into political action. One of the concrete results of these leadership trainings, for example, is that in six months of these trainings, then we saw an increase in recruitment of members in their unions up to 2,000 new, sorry, 9,000 new members among 26 organizations. It means immediately democratizing their union structures and sharing power without being afraid because they have been afraid, they have been survival, surviving, but with always with, you know, with fear. So transforming this, it can be quite powerful. There are so many stories where they break down and then rise up through, through the leadership trainings. And yeah, they, they really love the, the, this approach to building power from the inside. Is there any woman you're thinking of as you're telling me this and remembering back on those trainings, a case of somebody who uh, you were very moved by? As I, as I was saying that, I was thinking in my compañeras from Colombia, Paraguay, Brazil, Nicaragua, all of them have, an, have a story to share. Gender-based violence is the common thread, but also being regarded as la negra, black, India, indigenous, all these insults to themselves that, that further root kind of, you know, like disengaging from their bodies, disengaging from their value. Yes, I, I, I can think in so many of stories and, and how they uh, were able to join to a union and become a leader and then going to this training. It is a whole history when, when we see how they have been breaking every barrier along the way. And we're, of course, having this conversation a year into the global pandemic, and the pandemic has affected all workers and livelihoods globally. But can you share a little bit in, in Latin America, what has the pandemic been like for domestic workers? It's been tragic. It's been the worst impacted in terms of job losses, right? We have done a regional survey last year in May in the first wave of the pandemic. And we found that in 14 countries, 50% have lost their jobs. But it can be even worse. In some countries, like Colombia, 70% of them lost their jobs. In Central American countries, between 60% and 75%, depending on the population. But the worst is that they already entered into this, the, the pandemic without any protection. They didn't have any savings. They, as you can imagine, they were living day to day. So all of the sudden being dismissed has meant not only poverty, but hunger. They were uh, sharing with us in our WhatsApp groups, saying how really they have to go and try to get some breakfast or lunch at the church because it is uh, most of the family members also losing their jobs, their kids, their partners, the ones that have partners. And so it's, it's been hunger. Nevertheless, to also share the bright side and the resilient side of, of, of the movement, they have been gaining new members. Most of the unions have recruited new members. 
they were very, very quick in realizing that collective action and social unionism model had to be in place. They, before any source of financial support arrived, they started to organize themselves into these communal community pots, organizing food in their neighborhoods, bringing their, their, their members and just bring the potato, bring if you have onions, bring your onions, if you have a, a, a chicken, bring chicken and, and, and cooking a collective meal. That is strategy that is really coming from a huge empathy and a big heart. It meant political action because the other domestic workers who were not unionized in their neighborhood, then they realized that, wow, the, the union, it's the only one that is helping us. So they started to sign up union cards. No job, maybe not union activity, but this social unionist model had meant that they are gaining new members, more members, and they have been able to really connect with the needs of their membership. And they started to then advocate and to create and develop national campaigns and regional campaigns. Wow. So you're, you're saying that domestic workers who are 50% of them in Latin America, single moms, many of whom paid at or below the minimum wage, families they work for losing jobs and domestic workers losing jobs and livelihoods, and still coming together collectively to find ways to support other domestic workers in a time of hunger and, and despair. Where does that empathy come from, that spirit and that energy? It's amazing, isn't it? I think because they um, know what poverty is, because solidarity, it's not only a nice preface or, or concept, but because it is a way of living. I think that shows immediately when they know that they have to take action. Domestic workers know how to fight back collectively. Unlike other sectors in the labor movement, they never had the two main tools to fight back, which is the right to strike and collective bargaining, but they do have other strategies. And this resilience, this uh, creativity to really to not leave anyone behind, it doesn't matter if they are union members or non-union members. For them, they are workers, they are mothers, and they see themselves in all these ranges of their humanity. And um, these builds social movement, these builds unions, and uh, this is women's leadership out of like a great compassion. And through this leadership, we're seeing, you've mentioned, growth in domestic worker unions, membership, despite COVID, despite these circumstances. How many people are members of domestic workers across the Americas? Unfortunately, the rate of unionization in Latin America is between 1% and 2%. It's still very, very low. There are almost 20 million domestic workers in Latin America. Our biggest union is in Argentina, around 80,000 members. But this also is because of the particular history of the labor working class in Argentina. 
But in general, for I think for any sector, unionizing, it's, it's a challenge. But for domestic workers, it's, it's even more. We still have to do a lot of work for to unionize. And that is crazy that yeah, under the most difficult circumstances, they are growing their members. Their, their recruitment drives in pandemic times, it's been impressive. Care work must be valued work. And that means the workers who take care of our homes, our children's and ourselves must have safe jobs, decent wages and basic protections like unemployment pay, health care and sick leave. In Latin America, domestic workers are understanding their power, becoming leaders and making real change at their workplaces and in their communities. Our conversation with Adriana Paz continues after the break. Hi there, it's Shauna again. I just wanted to take a minute to invite you to check out Radio Labor, the international labor movement's radio service. Radio Labor produces daily newscasts about union events and issues, and it also produces special programs to support labor campaigns around the world. Check out Radio Labor at radiolabour.net and find out more about worker rights struggles around the world and how the movement is supporting their efforts for decent wages, fair treatment, and strong communities. Follow and subscribe at radiolabour.net. What are some of the achievements of domestic workers in the time of COVID? Some achievements for their organizations, some achievements, policy achievements, achievements they've gained at a national level or local level. Sure. Well, first of all, I would like to share that at the beginning of the pandemic, most of them have united into a big regional, if not global, campaign, which is Cuida a Quien Te Cuida in Spanish, care for those who care of you. This has been the banner. Under this banner, the main demands across the countries has been demanding the inclusion into government protections, emergency protections for salaries, employment, and inclusion into the, 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 the social security. Most of them have been left out, and the major achievements have been for domestic workers union to get into these social protection emergency programs for themselves. That is the case of Dominican Republic, that is the case of Argentina, that is the case of Peru and Chile. The other demand was the paid quarantine demand. Argentina was able to get that for domestic workers uh, that are over 60 or those who have little children. Then Chile, it's impressive, they were able to get the unemployment insurance. All the other sectors have unemployment insurance, they didn't. Now they are covered by unemployment insurance in times of pandemic. Peru was able to get a new domestic workers law, starting with a written contracts, because this is a strategy to overcome informality. If you are under informality, your employer can dismiss you easily. So for them was very important written contracts, but they also had a new domestic workers law. Like uh, maybe 
people work in a different location every day or tell us more about the the situation with informality that workers are trying to overcome in the domestic work sector during the pandemic. Yes, yes, exactly. Informality, it's translated into not being covered under any social protection. It could be working uh, for the same employer five days a week, but also can mean working for multiple employers one day or a few hours. But the main thing is that under this modality, they do not contribute to the social protection programs or systems in their countries. Most of the countries do not have a social protection uh, program that is adequate for this workforce. So basically not having any labor protection and social protection means that they can be dismissed at any moment. We can talk two programs about social protection, various for domestic workers, but in the pandemic, we saw that this is a crucial key element to really fight for and to achieve implementation. For, for social protection. And part of the key struggle of the global working class and working people in the pandemic is maintaining livelihoods despite the loss of income and lockdowns. And the achievements of domestic workers that you've mentioned to be covered by their country's laws and receive some of those supports is phenomenal for those families. I know in a lot of parts of the world, many domestic workers are immigrants from other countries. Sometimes they are migrants from different parts of the same country where they travel internally to work in a different part of the country than where they're from. Is that true in Latin America? Absolutely. There are um, about 12 million domestic uh, migrant domestic workers. And imagine if for the national workers, it is hard to be covered by social protections. Migrant workers by law are uh, excluded of all these protections. And their situation has been really critical. But again, the unions have stepped up. And most of the unions, those who have a, a physical office, were turned into shelters for domestic workers who weren't able to pay uh, rent and lost their jobs. The other national domestic workers had their houses or families, but they didn't have any place where to go. And that's where the unions became their main house. Where, where are some of the, give me an example of a, of a country context in which the, a large part of the domestic workforce it, of domestic workers is from some other place, they're immigrants or migrants. Traditionally, in, in, in Latin America, the, the more stable, biggest economies have been Argentina and Brazil and Chile. So we have big populations of Bolivians, Peruvians in Argentina and in Chile. In Brazil, also from, from different parts of South America. Biggest cities, Sao Paulo, have a big population. Even Filipino and African migrant domestic workers uh, you can find in, in, in Sao Paulo. And the union has been amazing. They have been unionizing and working with them, overcoming uh, language barriers to, to work with them. I think, yes, the Venezuelan migration, there is a, a huge diaspora in Colombia as well, and Ecuador. So I'm a Bolivian woman. I've moved to Argentina to work in my, my profession in the care economy. I'm a domestic worker. And then COVID hits. 
and there's a lockdown. Would I be, if I lived with my employer, would I be kicked out? Do I maintain the home? How does that, how did that work under this pandemic period in Latin America? We can, we saw two main scenarios. One is that yes, you could be kicked out because the employers also probably lost their job and doesn't have any money to keep paying a domestic worker. And where do you go? right? If you uh, do not have connection with the union or family members, most likely is that you will try to return to your country. And we have seen at the border uh, of uh, Chile and Bolivia, many migrant workers being locked down, not being able to cross the border because borders were were closed. So Mm. they were stuck and starving at the borders. Other situation can be that you are maintained, keep uh, working, but for months. There are migrant workers that have been for six months, eight months without seeing anyone and working, of course, more than eight hours, working 14, 16, 18 hours. So it's a level of exhaustion and not being able to go out and they don't want to lose their job. So you are either confined and locked down for months or you could be on the street or at the border or at the union. Yeah. You know, that takes me back a little bit to where you started when you were describing who are domestic workers and the legacy connected to slavery, which is, of course, you know, across the Americas. I'm thinking now as you're describing domestic workers who are at home, at their employer's home during the pandemic, being asked to work 14 hours a day. And I'm wondering about that connection that you started with to colonialism and and to slavery. When, When workers are coming together as domestic workers and forming unions, you were talking about that as a, as a powerful experience for individuals and collectively. I wonder what role do you see domestic uh, workers playing as we come out of the COVID crisis? I think the role of domestic workers has been crucial in exposing the vulnerability and the interconnection that we all have as human and the, the, the role of care. In, in our lives and in societies and in national economies. Um, it's been very ironic that most of the countries in Latin America have acknowledged that domestic work and care work is important. There are even some government that have attempted to categorize domestic work as essential work, but yet not giving all the protections, the labor protections, employment protections, salary protections to this essential workforce. So on one hand, it is acknowledged that they are valuable, but it doesn't translate into the implementation of the labor and legal frameworks of protection. I think most of the regular people, families, have also realized that without this job, they wouldn't be able to do their, their other jobs. I don't think there is any uh, doubt that this work in the pandemic has been valuable, has been valued, but now it needs to translate into how justice looks in legal frameworks. And, you know, 
The International Domestic Workers Federation, of which you are a part and a leader, organizes across borders. And I wonder, like when you're thinking about the future coming out of the COVID crisis, what, what role does international solidarity play in, in the future? I think this pandemic, Shona, has taught us that something that we listened often in, in, in marches and political rallies, but now it became really real. Until no one is free, until no one is safe, no one will be free or safe. If there is a sister, if there is someone that is still vulnerable to COVID or exploitation or hunger, all of us will be. I think the role of international solidarity is precisely to bring this message and to actively perform these actions that tell us that your safety, your uh, well-being, it's mine. It never was so uh, tangible and so real like in the pandemic. You know, we're all connected is so tangible in the COVID crisis. And yet, where you started with talking about injustice related to race, racism, discrimination, poverty, affecting domestic workers who come from parts of the region, maybe where the predominant population is indigenous, other places where migrant workers have been predominating in domestic work. All of us are stronger together, but all these other divides and barriers are still showing up in how we all relate to each other. And I wonder how you think about organizing in the face of all those divisions that keep us uh, separate when we should be connected. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, I think this is the, the utopia that make us wake up every day to all of us who are working on this. Yes, the pandemic, like you said, made us understand that we are all connected and we are all connected through care. Right. And organizing to basically dismantle capitalism and patriarchy. It is a a, a work that needs to be, as I said at the beginning, going back to the leadership training programs. It starts really at the individual level, looking at our stories and connecting through this care, acknowledging this deep humanity that we have. We have to really start debunking and challenging. So cool to be a flexible worker. So cool to be in informality. You don't have to pay taxes. So all it, I think it's breaking through all these um, false discourses. And it's coming back to what the pandemic taught us. We are all connected through care. And let's start healing from the inside. And this is political action in itself. To rebuild the economy, I honestly think that if we don't pressure governments to either create or implement labor protection, social protections, that means care for all, and or implementing the legal frameworks that we have, we are not going to overcome um, the effects of the pandemic. Do you have any like short-term goals in the next couple of years that you're working toward with domestic workers unions in the region? 
Yes, we do have dreams and goals. Latin America is one of the regions that have okay, I won't say good, or, or, or good legal frameworks for domestic workers. We have 15 ratifications of the ILO, International Labor Organization Convention, C1A9, on domestic, on decent work for domestic work. However, the implementation, the agenda of implementation of decent work for domestic workers is still a blue unicorn for most unions to achieve. And I will say for most sectors, the implementation of laws is what is major. So the pandemic has exposed that poverty, it is, it's going to be so difficult to overcome poverty if we do not really provide the population that is essential for care with these legal frameworks, implementation of the legal frameworks. For all the unions, their, their goals in uh, medium term goals is to keep advocating and implementing social protections, labor protections, unemployment insurance. We are talking about 22 million families in Latin America. And most of these women, as I said, are breadwinners, single uh, women. So it is a matter of social justice. It is a matter of breaking social inequality. Governments need to understand that if we want to overcome poverty, it is really addressing the conditions of women like domestic workers. And, and you know, democracy is in the news these days because... <laughs> got some problems in different parts of the world with democracy. And I wonder when you're talking about domestic workers organizing, how does, how does, how do you think about democracy? How does women coming together, forming unions relate to democracy to you? Democracy for me looks when the most affected ones are at the center and at the front of their own struggle providing the means, the spaces, the time and the resources for uh, the affected ones, the women, to figure out, explore, experiment new ways of understanding and building power that in itself is it is democratizing the power that the population has to, to decide what is the best and involving everyone creating democratic structures, unions in essence are those organizations that bring the, the voices of the workers, balancing power, sharing power, challenging power, and all those exercises are what we try to do uh, when we talk about capacity building, when we talk about leadership training, it's exercising those skills, but it's also and decolonizing yourself, your body, it's depatriarchalizing your body because all those systems of oppression live so much inside us, among us. So working at that level of our organizations and um, domestic workers are honestly one of the prime examples of how democracy looks like. I, I think every group, every social group will find their, their version of democracy. And, but when we see domestic workers' movement, you can sure find an inspiration. What does decent work for domestic workers look like to you? It is to be able to work, first of all, very, like they say, first of all, to look at them as, as workers, as valuable members, their work that they perform, it is so essential to, to not only survive, but to thrive. It is putting at the center the values of care, solidarity, and humanity. 
through the work that they perform, we receive that, right? For them to be able to have their work recognized as so valuable in society and themselves and women's work and this recognition being translated into policy, into laws, into social protections, into having a decent place where to live, and having a decent name. And in so many countries, they are called so many different names. They are not called their name. They are called something else. For them, it's claiming back their humanity. It's part of, of, of a decent work agenda work without harassment, free of violence. For many of them, silence and submission is a condition of their work, mm. and that is not decent. So those are some of the elements that will make decent work. And as, a, as an activist yourself, with a deep commitment to justice and equality and dignity for everyone, what inspires you? What keeps you going? What is your drive? I think it's my family, Shona. My grandmother was migrant uh, farm worker in, from Bolivia in Argentina, working in sugarcane plantations. After she moved to, uh, to Argentina as undocumented worker, started to clean houses and work as a domestic worker. Then she moved into cooking and selling food on the streets because she found that she was more respected and free if she was not working as a domestic worker. I've learned the story of my grandma many years after I was working with farm workers and domestic workers, but I think it is without consciously knowing I think it is in our intergenerational connection with my grandma that makes all these connections so open and so real with everyone else, with all the domestic workers. So many people say that organizing is not personal. I say it is, it is personal. It has to do with us. It has to do with our, with our personal experiences. And if we can translate into political action, I think this is what makes us activists. <laughs> We experience intergenerational trauma, as you shared in the beginning. But that story of your grandmother and how it inspires you is intergenerational power. Oh, thank you, Shona. That's beautiful. <laughs> thank you so much for your incredibly important story. Thank you. Those were great questions. Thank you for the opportunity, Shona. Talking with Adriana, what really struck me is how domestic workers in the region are committed to transformational leadership development that empowers grassroots feminist leaders across Latin America to challenge patriarchal standards that the quote-unquote traditional leadership seems so desperate to reinforce. It's a model that the International Domestic Workers Federation is putting into practice all over the world. In the midst of incredible hardship, domestic workers in Latin America have come together through their unions and associations to take care of each other and to use their collective strength to push for the legal rights they deserve as workers. The power of unions is the power of workers working together for each other and for all of us. 
like the domestic worker whose best inheritance for her daughter is this movement, this solidarity. As Adriana said so beautifully, solidarity is not just a concept, but a way of living, of taking action. Thanks again to Adriana Paz, whose vision of international solidarity is an example to us all. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the Solidarity Center podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your shows and learn more about the Solidarity Center at SolidarityCenter.org and through our social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Tune in next week as we talk with Ayuba Weba, president of the International Trade Union Confederation and president of the Nigeria Labor Congress. He will talk with us about how unions in Nigeria have worked to ensure frontline health workers have good salaries and social protection as they provide care throughout the COVID-19 crisis, and how workers everywhere can and must build back a better world for workers after the pandemic. This podcast is a production of thestoryproducer.com with executive producer Tyler Green and producer and engineer Adam Yaffe. The Solidarity Center is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. And special thanks to the staff of the Solidarity Center who assisted with this podcast. In more than 60 countries around the world, we work to ensure a righteous future for workers, dignity, freedom, equality, and justice. For the Solidarity Center podcast, I'm Shauna Bader-Blau. Thanks for listening.